You are listening to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio, broadcasting live on 88FM and streaming on the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. I'm speaking with Iran Berkovich, Director of Eastern Europe Jewish Agency. Thank you for having me, David. Thank you. Really happy to be with you today. And uh, you, I think you have a soft spot for Australia because you uh, spent some time here, but we'll get to that in a, in a moment. Now, you've spent the entirety of your two-plus decade career progressively advancing in Jewish communal service positions with the World Zionist Organization and the Jewish Agency for Israel. Now, could you run through your amazing journey that has taken you to your current role as Director of Eastern Europe for the Jewish Agency? I know it's been a long a long haul, and so uh, I'm sure we can get a, a version of it that uh, will fit into my program. Sure. Usually when I'm trying to do, introduce myself, I'm calling myself a professional Jew. Because all what I've done in the recent two decades is uh, actually working on streaking Jewish identity and connecting uh, Jewish communities to Israel. I actually started my uh, journey when I was about to finish my army service from the IDF. I was one of the first five soldiers that elected in a special program to be sent to summer camps in the U.S. And since I stepped into a summer camp in 1998, I fell in love with the story of uh, Jewish life and Jewish community abroad. This summer changed all my life. Since then, I went back to the camp, I think like for four summers. I went back to Israel. I become a year program counselor. Then I moved into a special place and worked for Adassa for a few years as a program director for observing a center in Jerusalem for English speakers Olim. Then I went on my long-term shlichut in Australia in 2007. I spent almost four years in Australia. Australia is a special place, and especially the Jewish community there in my art. I'm still keeping on the relationship that I created there over a decade ago, really close to the leadership, really close to the families in Melbourne and in Sydney. I was the Shariah for Abonim Drordel and also the representative of Jewish Agency in Okeania. I also work with the community in New Zealand. On my last day of my Shlichut in Australia, I said, and I believe that I filled it up, that I came to Australia as a Shariah, as an emissary. But I left Australia also as an emissary of the Jewish community there because, and also some of my colleagues making jokes about it, that like in everywhere, since then, I'm telling about the community in Australia and giving it as an example of how Jewish life abroad should look like, how it should be connected to Israel. And I think that like the Australian Jewish community is a role model for all Jewry around the world. And when I head back from my Shlichut in Australia, I work at the Jewish Agency, at the Shlichut Department. I was the director for the short-term Shlichuyot. Your audience probably familiar with the Zionist seminars. This is part of the programs that I was charged on and developed. Back then, after two years in this position, 
also was like a close circle for me. The other problem was Shlichet to summer camps in the U.S. And after three years, I moved to be the vice director of the Shlichut department. I filled up this position for over a year. And then I moved to the World Zionist Organization, which is the, I should say, one of the organizations that lead the Jewish agency. I was the director for the educational department for four years. Then I moved to a new department, the Zionist Enterprise Department, which I filled up this position till last May. And in last May, I went back home to the Jewish agency to fill up my seventh role as the Eastern Europe Regional Director. So that's uh, wrapped it up. Uh, you would say, in a nutshell for us, given what you've been telling us, Iran, would you say your life is going to be dedicated to serving Jewish communities uh, with your kind of resume? Could you ever be considered for any other kind of employment? Not really, not really. You know, in my family, I have two older brothers. One is a lawyer and the other one is a counter. And my parents used to tell me that, like, I should be a doctor. If you took me before the time uh, that I was being sent to be a shaliach to summer camp in the U.S., so my plans at the end of the IDF was, like, all other Israel is to finish my army service, to do some walks, getting some money to travel around the world and then go back to Israel and start a medical school. But as I said before, this experience changed my life and I decided to dedicate my uh, professional life to Jewish community support. Are you interested at all in uh, politics That as an as a exit from what you're doing now? I'm just thinking uh, of uh, I'm thinking of uh, the Minister for Diaspora Affairs, Amichai Chitli, who's not very popular. His job might become available. I think that one of the bonuses of working in an organization like a Jewish agency, that uh, politics doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we're working with every politic party that all every ministry in Israeli government. Our goals are, I think, common for most of the Zionist parties in the third Knesset and in the previous Knessets. And this is like strengthening Jewish identity and connecting people to Israel. It doesn't matter if you belong to the left side or to the right side. We always feel the common language and we find ourselves working together with every minister. I feel much more to the field of doing rather than to design the, the goals. You're doing rather than talking. So what are your responsibilities in your position of Director of Eastern Europe for the Jewish Agency? What, what do you do as, as part of your job? A lot, first of all. As you may know, it took us like a long time to schedule this interview. I'm actually building like a new regional department at the Jewish Agency because till the war broke down between Russia and Ukraine, we used to have Russian speakers' desk. And since the war started, it's actually forced us to divide the region. And I'm actually the first regional director for Eastern Europe, which is basically contained almost 18 countries with Jewish communities from Ukraine up to Germany. And I think the most challenging thing is right now it's to work with the Jewish community in Ukraine. 
As you may know, before the war, we had uh, 200,000 Jews in Ukraine. We believe that like 50,000 left since the beginning of the war. Some of them to Israel, almost 20,000. The others like went into small communities around Europe, the majority of them based in Germany for different reasons. That's what kept me busy most of the time. We actually right now dealing with finding a place which is going to be kind of a camp in the Transcarpathic area between Ushgards and, uh, and, and Munch. It's considered to be a safe zone in Ukraine, and that place should be our hub for all our activities, uh, what we call activities under fire, because Ukraine is still under war. So this hub should be the place where people can feel safe and still thinking about Aliyah, still explore the Jewish identity, still connect to Israel, if it's in summer camps or conference or any other programs that we develop uh, through the years in Ukraine. Meanwhile, I also come back from two weeks ago, I was traveling around Ukraine and we tried to find shelters to bring back our activities. For example, not like in Australia, Jewish agency function is actually activity, a body that like run the activities from A to Z. So for example, we have Sunday schools and we have Ulpani, Hebrew classes for adults. So we need a safe place for this, and I'm happy to say that we find some shelters in Odessa and in Dnepro and in Kiev and in Lvov. So we're planning to bring our programs back to life in the safe places in those cities after Sukkot. Okay. Now there's, as I've found on your um, uh, website for the Jewish Agency, yeah, there's a, a new phenomenon. But actually, before I ask you that. You referred to the Russian desk in, uh, of the Jewish Agency. There was a court hearing in, uh, in Russia about the, the agency and its uh, permission to operate or to continue operating in, the, uh, in Russia. What was the outcome of that? Is it still uh, hanging or what's the story there? Okay, because I don't have anything with Russia. I have a colleague, Milana, which one in... The activities of the Jewish Agency in uh, Russia, from my best knowledge right now, it's still in court. Mm-hmm. I know that the foreign ministry in Israel highly involved in the negotiation and in the situation. Obviously, the issue is not about the Jewish Agency activity. It's bigger than that. And this is why the foreign ministry is highly involved in this. All right, so uh, people can do their own research to find out what's going on, but uh, as you say, it hasn't been finalised. It's still ongoing. Yeah. Now, a new new phenomenon emerged with the reappearance of Jewish communities of Eastern and East Central Europe in the last decade or so. Well, actually, this article that I'm reading probably is a bit dated because uh, it refers to the last decade or so since the fall of Soviet communism. But uh, we're still uh, seeing only uh, two or three decades since that happened. Now, various mm-hmm. organizations arrived on the scene at the time, Chabad, uh, religious groups from reform and conservative organizations, Zionist bodies, including uh, uh, Shlechim, started yep. to come. 
And as, as it says on uh, your website, I like this ex- the way it describes it. It was like a series of electric currents being applied to the body of a comatose stroke victim to see if there would be any response. Would the patient die on the operating table despite the massive medical and support staff that it was receiving? Uh, the answer, it seems, was no. Do you want to uh, perhaps comment on uh, how the uh, communities have been flourishing since the fall of communism? Yeah, I think that like part of our success in what happened in Ukraine, and when I mention success, it's the fact that like in three months, you know, the war started at the end of February 22. And after three months, due to this cooperation between the organization and due to the hard work of all those years, we had five different stations around the borders. And every Jews that crossed the border, the first sign that he saw it was Jewish agency sign and other organization sign, it's the JDC. And those of them that crossed the border know exactly what it's mean Jewish agency and what it's mean JDC. I was running the station in Romania, for example. We used to have those stations across the border also in Poland, in Hungary, and in other countries. One day I asked a person that walked into our tents, how we know that we are here for him and people for him? And he said, what do you mean how I know? I went to Jewish agency camps as a kid. I went to your urban classes. And I participate also in the weekly meetings in my city, in Kharkiv. So the fact that those Jewish organizations was in the field since the collapse of the USSR for 20 years and create Jewish activities and create Jewish communities' lives in Ukraine actually help us in this kind of operation. I should add to this that like one of the things that like surprised me for good is the cooperation between the organization. You know, usually we talk about the competition that we have between organization and the uh, feeling that like sometimes uh, this organization steps on the tones of the other organization and they're working on the same field. In every organization, I think since the beginning of the world, know exactly what is goal and what is doing. Okay, we know that as Jewish agency, our mission is to take care of the well-being. Okay, we are focusing on education. We are focusing on encouraging Aliyah in Ukraine. Other organizations, as JDC, taking care of the other needs. If people need medicine, if people need like shelters and etc. They are the address for this. Chabad is taking care of the religious life in the community. So I think if there is something good that I hope that's going to continuity, hopefully really soon when the war will be over, it's the cooperation between the organization and the fact that we are working together. Now, without question, Ukraine is a significant focus of your efforts in your current position, as you've been saying already, and you've only just recently returned from a trip to the uh, Ukraine. Can you tell us what uh, the Jewish agency is doing in particular to assist Jews there as a consequence of the war? I mean, how much of your effort is involved in assisting people in situ compared to helping them uh, emigrate to to Israel, for example? And for those coming to Israel, are they going to stay or are they going to return in large numbers to the Ukraine once the war ends? 
I would like to point out a few points as an answer to your question. The first one, we all need to realize that the war is still going on. Okay, we have the feeling, and sometimes it's not up on the news, but every day something happens in Ukraine. Last week, as I said before, I spent like three days in Odessa, but I spent also two full nights at shelter because siren came and I heard the bombs above my head. This is the reality where people, how people live in Ukraine or parts in Ukraine, especially if you get in close to the eastern border. We all need to be aware to this. This is the first point. The second point, our focus in Ukraine right now, it's taking the knowledge that we got in Israel from the different operation that Israel ran in the northern border and in the southern border with Gaza and bring this knowledge to the community in Ukraine. So, for example, we put in our, we have security funds and we invest in lots of money of creating shelters. Shelters are really needed now for the community. Why it's needed? By the way, these funds coming through the donations of Jewish communities around the globe. It's coming from JFNA in North America, but it's also coming from Karen ISO. That means that people in the Jewish community that donate money to Karen ISO, this is one of the impacts. Okay, they're giving shelter to Jewish people in Ukraine, whether they can have schools there, whether they can have like informal educational activity there, whether they can have, they can celebrate Rosh Hashanah. Okay, the communities in Odessa celebrate Rosh Hashanah in a shelter. Thanks to the gifts that we collect from the Jewish people around the globe. The third thing that we try to create in Ukraine, it's bringing back, as I said before, life to normal as possible under the certain situation. So we try to bring back our formal education life. And it's not easy. We try to back our informal education activities. We try to train leaderships in the community when it's come to resilience. So we try to create a different action rather to strengthen the well-being of the community under this uh, situation. So the last part of what I was asking in terms of people from Ukraine coming to Israel, what uh, what's uh, the numbers there? So since the beginning of the war, we have like 20,000 Olim. This is how we call them, Jewish, that decide to move the, the life uh, to Israel. It's really interesting because the situation in Ukraine not allow males cross the border if if they are in the age of 18 up to 68, the majorities of the Olim are actually a lot of females, with young families, females with the kids or adult people. We just ran a pool between them in the recent few months, and the answer said, and by the way, we asked them the question, if the war will be over soon, will you go back to Ukraine or stay in Israel? So over 90% of them say that like they prefer to stay in Israel, and they're waiting for their husbands and to the brothers to join them. This is another mission, by the way, that we fill up, like we're working with the close groups of relatives, of those women that decide to make a real wedding, waiting for the husband in Israel. So we have in like the groups of those relatives, different cities in Ukraine that we're working with them and, and prepare them for Aliyah. Because we believe that at the minute that the peace will come to Ukraine, some of them will choose to join the relatives in Israel. We try to prepare them as best as we can. 
I would like also to mention that we are still working in this region with a few communities that decide to stay in Europe. Some of them still have an open question if they want to make Aliyah, and we try to present them this option, also provide them some ebook classes. The reason that they are not making Aliyah are different reasons. Some of them believe that like they are waiting close to the border to the relatives, and they want to make this Aliyah when the husbands and the brothers can join them. And some of them staying there, like in the border, because like uh, close to the borders of Ukraine, because they didn't make a demand yet. Okay, it's not a clear situation. We don't know how the war will be end and when. We also like put in lots of efforts on this like Jewish refugee communities. Most of them located, as I said before, in Germany, but like we also have communities in Warsaw, in Poland. We have a community in Bucharest. We have a community in Budapest. Here in our office in Budapest, every day in the afternoon, we have an afternoon school for Jewish refugee kids, which is highly important. We've got like over 120 kids every week coming to participate in our activities. And they're struggling. It's they're struggling. Like we need to bear in mind that those people run away. They didn't make a decision as we want most of the Jewish people make this decision under peace to make Aliyah, okay? They run away, that was the rescue option, it's Jewish people. Here we try to provide them the tools that if they choose to come to Israel after this period, that they still choose to live in Europe, they have the tools to succeed in Israel. So this is why we put lots of efforts on teaching them Hebrew. We also have like professional classes, okay, for doctors and for nurses. Because when they arrive to Israel, they need to pass an exam, so we try to prepare them. So we take in different action rather to prepare them as much as possible to the option of making Aliyah. So you're highlighting uh, what's going on uh, continually. I would assume that people who want to uh, throw some support uh, behind the Ukrainian effort, uh, they can just uh, communicate with the United Israel Appeal here in Australia, and they will have a vehicle to uh, to get money into uh, the hands of, of your team and, and, and others uh, who are supporting people in Ukraine. Totally, totally. I'll just explain how much it's important. Every cent and every penny that like, will be invest on those funds in the UAA or... In Jaffna, if you're in uh, North America, uh, I'm happy to say that Jaffna also going to start a new campaign to raise money uh, to support the communities in Ukraine and in Russia because it's highly needed. It's highly needed. You just need to understand, for example, let me share a personal story. A few weeks ago, I was visiting uh, one of our summer camps and I met Sasha. Sasha is in five grade. And I saw him all the time, ironically, you know, like in a, a state that underwore, smiling and like running. So I took him to the side and tried to find out like where he's from. He's from Kharkiv. He told me that his house destroyed during the first months of the war. And I asked him, why you are so happy? And he told me, Iran, this is like one of the few times that I can come together with my friends 
because during COVID we were close at home. Then we have five months at school and then the war starts. I don't have time even like to spend like with friends in my age. And then I realized that like even before we start running activities for them about the Jewish identity and about Israel, the fact that we bring them all together, this is a real need for those kids. Kids in year five just spend like three or four months together with his peers at schools two years ago. Since then, we just like spend this time in front of the computer, study at home. He didn't get this opportunity. By the way, to get from his home to the campsite, it took him like 20 hours on the train. I'm not talking even about like the fact that the parents feel so confident in our activities that they're willing to send their kids during the war, during this time, on a train of 20 hours, rather than like those kids will have the experience of a Jewish camp life. So when people put in this donation to those amazing organizations, UIA, Jaffna in North America, this money is really become useful for us to run those activities. And as much as we have funds, we get more shelters in more cities in Ukraine, and we'll be able also like to run those kinds of activities. If it's in Sunday afternoon schools, if it's like other informal education for those kids, this is part of like our goal to take care of the well-being of the Jewish community in Ukraine, also under this uh, kind of situation. Now, you're based in Hungary. Yeah. Uh, you said that the center you've set up in, in Hungary is, is, is the, for the first time. Why, why was Hungary picked? If you're looking around outside of Ukraine, where is the largest Jewish community is, so Hungary is the largest community. We're assuming that there are over 100,000 Jews living in Hungary. Really? The majority of them, yeah, the majority of them based in Budapest. And they have a few challenges. One of the challenges that if you're looking into the new generation, I just read an article that point out, research actually, that point out that 55% of them getting into marriage with non-Jew, for example. Antisemitism, especially outside of Budapest, the recent polls are erased. It's really interesting why come and how come in places where no Jewish life uh, and where Jewish are not living anymore, there is a rise in anti-Semitism. But this is a fact. And this is part of the challenges of this community. By the way, the majority of this community define themselves as uh, 80% define themselves as not religious. So it's a real challenge for us how to connect the young generation, the young adults into the Jewish identity and also to Israel under this situation. Yeah, I'm certainly surprised that uh, you uh, give me a number as large as 100,000. What I've seen in documentation uh, across the internet puts the figures more uh, like about 50,000 uh, in terms of the Hungarian Jewish community. If you make it 100,000, You've got a community which is not uh, dissimilar to uh, the numbers we have in Australia. We are actually counting Jewish by the law of them. Maybe they are not Jewish by the halacha, or maybe they are not Jewish, even they are not identifying themselves as Jewish, 
but the fact that the grandmother was Jewish, we consider them to be a target audience because by the law of return, they are totally legible for Aliyah. This is why we target them as part of our audience, part of the target audience that we try to reach out. And you need to understand that like it's really common phenomena. Okay. Um, last week I got like, I think he's a guy like 38 years old walking into our building and told us that like, just find out that his grandmother was Jewish. And he would like to explore what it's mean to be Jewish. And ask him like, what do you mean you just discovered out? So he told me like, listen, like usually when we went to my grandmother's house, she didn't like put uh, meat and cheese together on the table. She used to light candles on Friday night, but like, I thought it just like tradition, a family tradition. I didn't connect it to Judaism. And then when I explore my uh, family roots, we find out that my mother was born and raised as a Jew, and I would like to find more about it. So this is one example, and it's happening you know, like really often, I should say, mm. like people walking into our place or to other congregation or to other Jewish organization and say that they discover they have Jewish roots and they would like to find out what it's mean for them. Yeah, there's a story, I can't remember the, the, the people exactly, but this goes into Germany where there were a couple who were, who were uh, uh, Nazis and uh, they discovered, uh, both of them discovered that they had uh, Jewish roots and that uh, completely changed their lives and they, uh, and they became uh, practicing uh, Orthodox Jews even following their discovery. It's an extraordinary story. Just to finish with you, Iran, so you can get to work, what is it like for you as an Israeli living in Hungary? Uh, can you make some kind of a, a comparison, a quality of life comparison? I know you've only been there for a short time, but what uh, what what's your sense? It's a beautiful city, I should say, Budapest. And our office located in the entrance to the Jewish Garden. Budapest was mean a lot for Jewish community, especially before the World War II. It was a central place for Jewish people, Unionists in Europe. Through the days, I understand why. Uh, by the way, it's located in the center between the eastern countries to the western countries in Europe or the central countries in Europe. It was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. That's fascinating place to learn about the history and the connection to the, the Jewish people. And for me, it's also close the circle. I should say, my grandparents didn't born in Budapest, but they're born like not so far away from here. They're born in Romania, uh, close to the border with Hungary. And for me, it's also causing a circle because I'm coming back to the place more or less where my grandparents and my roots belong to. It's another closing circle for me. Well, I really thank you very much. It's been... Uh worthwhile being patient to, to to get this interview to happen with you Ron, and i think that your role is uh, is an extremely important one and i think uh, you're the man for the job and i uh, certainly uh, commend you on your efforts thank you david let me use this opportunity and wish all the people that i know in the jewish community in Australia and those who i don't know a year of peace for them 
and for the rest of the Jewish people around the world in Israel and in Ukraine. And I wish that this upcoming year will bring a peace with them. Yes, I echo your sentiments exactly. Thank you very much okay. again. Thank you, David. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a conversation with Eran Berkovich, who was the recently appointed Director of Eastern Europe for the Jewish Agency. My next guest is local filmmaker Danny Ben-Moshe, who is in the process of creating an immersive virtual reality film which will take the viewer on a journey into the widespread movement in Israel protesting over the judicial overhaul program of the current government. Before I speak with Danny live, we're going to listen to some of the audio at the beginning of his work in progress titled Demonstrating for Democracy on the Front Line of Israel's Protest Movement. In what has become a regular Saturday night in Tel Aviv and across Israel, Israelis from all walks of life gather for the 14th week in a row to protest. They come in opposition to a plan by the most right-wing and religious government in Israel's history to curtail the power of the Supreme Court. The government won the election, but they are changing the democratic system that brought them to power. The government has its supporters, but the majority of Israelis oppose the change, fearing that without this check and balance, Israel will go from being a Jewish and democratic state to an autocracy and theocracy. And so they come, week after week after week. I welcome filmmaker Danny Ben-Moshe, whose voice you just heard in a teaser that Danny has produced to be shown soon at the Jewish International Film Festival in Melbourne and Sydney. How's it going, Danny? Don't seem to have Danny on the line. I'll uh, just go to a bit of music and we'll get him back. Your short film that we've been just introducing is going to be on at the uh, Jewish Film Festival. Yes. It's, uh, it's only five minutes, but uh, you use uh, video time-lapse uh, photography to squeeze an awful lot into five minutes. So how do you plan to develop your film further from, from here? I would say two things. It's a virtual reality film. So the idea is that people, aren't, viewers aren't watching protests in Israel as if they were sitting in front of their TV watching the news or something or a documentary at night. It's immersive. So you put on a headset um, and you look around and you are there. You are in it. You are at it. And I'm not sure if you've ever watched a, a, a VR, virtual reality film, but by definition, they're all shorts. So I hope this film will be, I expect this film to be about 12 minutes long. Um, but there's only so long viewers can stay in a headset for. So pretty much um, I have shot more or less everything I need to shoot to cut the film. But uh, every... Uh, 
you know, every second of what you shoot and what you cut and what you edit uh, takes time and money. So um, I will complete it when I have the funding to do so. Is this the first time you've produced a film of this kind? Uh, no, I actually made a virtual reality film for Melbourne's Holocaust Museum a few years ago. I was making a documentary, a 2D, a regular documentary, or I was developing a 2D regular documentary called The Last Survivors. And I was kind of tracking the process the museum was going through as it was transitioning from having survivors that the 30,000 school kids that go there each year could meet to not. And they had different programs and initiatives to sort of um, deal with that issue. And I was at a documentary, a major documentary festival overseas, and spent a lot of time at virtual reality sessions and watching virtual reality films. And I thought, hey, forget the 2D documentary that I'm making about, you know, what's going on. Let's create a virtual reality film with survivors now so that when, given the finite reality, when they're no longer around for the kids to meet in person, they can put on a headset and meet them virtually. And we filmed uh, one documentary, which is going to be released very soon, in the new VR room, in the virtual reality room, at the Holocaust Centre here in Melbourne. And, um, and, and so I had some experience with it, and I've seen a few just, you know, as a consumer and as a filmmaker... And then when I saw what was going on in Israel, I realized this was something of epic historic proportions. Now, imagine if we could go back in time and be part of the masses flocking to the Kotel after the Six-Day War on Sukkot. Or if it was the 29th of November, 1947, and the UN has just voted on partition, and we could be dancing a horror in the streets of Tel Aviv. What is going on now, whichever way it pans out, um, is a major moment in Israeli and Jewish history. And when the history of this country and of our people is written, this will be a major chapter in it. So I also wanted to capture it in a way, not only for people to experience now the enormity of what's going on, um, but also in the future as well. So when the film is screened uh, this time around, uh, people will just see it uh, as a normal piece of cinema. You won't have all the gadgetry there to enable them to experience? No, no. no the Jewish International Film Festival do want to show it with the gadgetry once it's finished. Um, but obviously I need to finish it yet, but hopefully next year. So it will just be projected onto a 2D screen, a regular screen. It will look slightly stretched because it's, a, it's actually a circular image, but it's still, it's still very watchable. Um, it's just you don't get the immersive experience. But given the currency of the, the issue, the urgency of the issue, the importance of the issue, um, it was decided to, to share it uh, on, on 2D screen um, at this year's festival. Yes, it's uh, certainly uh, very interesting from what I've uh, seen of it uh, uh, to date. Are you collaborating with uh, others in the making of the film? And not, well, I mean, every film is really a kind of a collaboration of sorts. I mean, I've had two, I've got two virtual reality cinematographers in Israel that I've used. Um, 
Uh, it's not a kind of a co-production or anything like that, but, you know, I have a crew of people, um, a local producer who's helped me on the ground in Israel, uh, an editor who was cutting it uh, in Israel. So in as much as any film is a collaborative piece of work, this is a collaborative piece of work, but it's not like, you know, uh, in any formal sense, a collaboration with another production company or using a director in Israel or, or anything like that. Yes, you're very hands-on with the works you do, uh, doing the narration and and involved in so many facets of uh, the production of, of what you do uh, with uh, with your filmmaking, aren't you, Danny? Well, it's, it's. I mean, in some of my films, in this film you hear my voice and I'm in it. Um, in other films, I've got another film that's coming out, um, which is a more mainstream, you know, television, cinema film uh, called Revenge, which will also be a gif. Um, I'm not in it at all. It's a matter of, you know, does it fit in the story and what's needed to tell that particular story? So I think, you know, different different stories uh, are to be told in different ways. And, and that's true in terms of narration or non-narration or me as the filmmaker or not, as the case may be. And it's also true about virtual reality. Virtual reality, if I was making a film, I don't know, about... Um, I don't know, uh, a day in the life of Melbourne, and I just wanted to show that to people around the world. Well, I don't need to make that in virtual reality. If I mean, obviously, I could, right? But if there is something going on that you want people to experience and that is, and is told that the reality of it is 360, so when you're standing there, as I have over many weeks, in a protest, and in front of you there might be a Megillah Atma or the Declaration of Independence. To the left of you there may be a band playing. To the right of you there may be, as in a street band, to the right of you there might be um, some kids banging drums. And behind you there may be a, um, a Bimah stand with speakers, right? And above you, there might be some flag flying through the sky. Well, so you really want to see it all in 360. So that's kind of, hopefully, I've chosen the right device to tell this story in the right way. Um, but, you know, the perils of filmmaking, I've just got to wait till I, till I raise enough money to complete it so that people can actually see it. In, in VR, watch it on headsets in a, in a curated way. But I'm very grateful to, you know, the donors of, who are all from the Melbourne Jewish community that have enabled me to, to shoot and produce what I have to date. So you were in Israel earlier this year. Were you there specifically to capture footage of yeah. these uh, pro-democracy protests, as you refer yeah. to them? Yes. Yes, yes. I went to Israel specifically to capture this moment because, you know, if I wanted to make a film about, I don't know, swimming pools in Melbourne, <laughs> I could do that this year, next year, or the year after. Um, sometimes there are moments that are moments and they need to be captured. And this story is moving so fast. And what is happening to the State of Israel, to the Zionist movement, and the threat to its future is so immediate 
that um, um, I basically felt a sense of urgency to go. And I'm very glad that I was very fortuitous that I did go when I did, because I was there in March on the weekend where Defence Minister Gallant um, was fired, and then he was not fired, and the, the, the protests took on a whole new lease of life. And I have that footage from when the protesters went onto the Ayalon Freeway, which was really this unprecedented turning point in what's, what I call the first stage of the protests, which was really from the beginning of the year till the passage of the reasonableness law at the end of July. And then, you know, um, so that's kind of what I've captured to date. So I went specifically, I went specifically to film. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but what happened, happened. And then I was there over, you know, a crucial period of time in the Jewish-Israeli calendar, Pesach, Yom HaShoah, Yom HaZikaron, uh, I was there when Ben Gvir, you know, very um, provocatively went to a military cemetery on Yom Zikaron on Fallen Soldiers' Day, when on Memorial Day, when the Mishpachot Shakulot, when the bereaved families asked him not to attend. Um, and literally, it was such a horrible experience because, you know, when anything's horrible in real life, it's good in film, but literally fights erupting around me in a cemetery between families. It, it was just so painful, and you just realize if that in the Holy of Holies of Israel can happen, then anything can happen. Um, and I have that on film. And then I hoped to be, I, hoped, I thought I'd finished the film on Yom Atzmaut, where I was back in Kaplan in Tel Aviv, and it was kind of Israel turned 75, and the film was going to end with, which way will the country go, you know, down a, a democratic route, pluralistic path, the traditional path of being a Jewish and democratic state, or a kind of extremist, fundamentalist, theocratic one, anti-democratic one, or a liberal democratic one, we don't know. And that's kind of how I was leaving it. And then, of course, the, legisl one, the legislation happened, and this march to Jerusalem, it was on a whole new level. So I got back to Israel, um, filmed the National Day of Protest at the airports where Water Cannon came out on protesters um, with the march to Jerusalem and then being in Israel on the day that the legislation uh, passed in the Knesset. So people ask me, am I done with it? Um, well, the story isn't done, but, you know, at some point you have to draw a line as a filmmaker, otherwise you keep going forever. Um, I'm exploring 2D opportunities for long-form filmmaking of this, which would mean shooting over the next two to three years. But that's really up to uh, broadcasters and whether they want to commission me to do so. I, I, I think when the votes, when the when the when the, the the guts of the Supreme Court hands down their decision on their reasonableness bill, you know that is going to be such a moment because it's clear that the guts. If, the, if, and we don't know which way the, the guts is going to rule, that they say that the government's reasonableness law is un unreasonable, that they rule on the law that the government has said they can't rule on, um, there's going to be such a constitutional crisis in the country that has no constitution. Who knows which way it could go? I would very much like to be there for that because the talk of what might happen at that time... But, uh, you know, 
that all at the moment that that would all depend on when that happens, if it happens, if there's film funding. Um, but whether I film that or not, I know I have enough content to create a documentary that captures this particular moment and the story. It's not. I'm not telling the story of this issue. I'm not telling a story of Israel's constitutional history. I'm telling uh, the story of the protest movement um, because you know it's been described as um, you know I, I'm interested in inspiring stories. And I think this is an incredibly inspiring story because democracy is under assault uh, globally, you know. We, we, we've seen it. You don't need to look any further than Trump in America um, to know that. And I think, you know, when you, what the Israelis say is they're not going to be Poland, Hungary or Turkey. Democracies that will roll back. And democracies can be rolled back. And I think Israel, the, the protest movement, is a shining light um, on civil society standing up for what they believe in. Um, and so I think it's a story that can be, that is relevant to, you know, other countries and other peoples. So, you know, as a filmmaker, all you can do is hopefully do justice to, to the story you're trying to tell. And just quickly, Danny, how can people support your film if uh, they want to get behind it? Uh, well, if they were interested enough to do so, they can either just con find me and contact me, or they can go to the Documentary Australia website. I think it's just doc documentaryaustralia.org.au or something like that, Documentary Australia. And if they put in the search uh, engine Israel, the film will come up and people can make tax-deductible donations. Well, thanks very much for talking to us on Israel Connection today, Danny. Pleasure good. to do so. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, good luck Thank with you. your film. Cheers. Bye. You've been listening to a local filmmaker, Danny Ben Moshe, whose short film titled Demonstrating for Democracy on the Frontline of Israel's Protest Movement will be screened at the Jewish International Film Festival in November. B'nai B'rith has kicked off the latest series of his popular armchair society, Current Affairs Discussions at the Beth Weizmann Auditorium in Melbourne. The first session took place on Tuesday, October the 3rd, featuring the esteemed Greg Sheridan AO, foreign editor of The Australian, on the topic Israel and Australia, Democracy in Dangerous Times. Greg Sheridan has consistently demonstrated his ability to navigate complex political and social landscapes with exceptional insight and analytical prowess. His unique perspective and articulate commentary have established him as a prominent voice in the national discourse. There was a huge crowd at the event. I will play one question that was posed there, with Greg Sheridan's considered response. I spoke to Greg Sheridan briefly and hope to have him on this show later this year. My name's Alan Freeman. For 50 years, the Palestinians have been pushing their narrative uh, a dishonest one in my view, and, and they tell this story that after the war, the Jews barged into someone else's country, threw the inhabitants out of their homes and stole their land. And this, this view is pretty well taken up by most of the world, and, and, and thank you to you and to News Limited for not, for not just uh, adopting that view uh, uh, willy-nilly. But, but it's a problem because we seem to be talking about the Arab-Israeli conflict 
but without being in the context of truth. And I'm just wondering how are we are going to get this, this narrative to change so that when we talk about peace in the Middle East, we at least talk about it you know, from, from a factual basis. That's a really good question and very difficult, uh, very difficult to provide the answer. But look, I'll say a few things happening. So I think the efforts of Jewish communities around the world to wage a guerrilla warfare so that the truth be told is a very good thing. So I don't know what the intra-Jewish politics are, but I'd say that uh, I greatly admire Colin Rubenstein's organisation, the Australia-Israel Jewish Affairs Committee, and their relentless activism day after day to you know, balance the media narrative and to provide facts and to provide access to visitors and so on. I think they do a fantastic job. Secondly, one reason I read that book is that to get believers to own their belief. I think Friends of Israel need to own their friendship with Israel. It's too easy. I've been on loads of Q&A panels where there are people that I know who are pro-Israel who won't say anything because there's a baying audience out there. But really, imagine being scared of a Q&A audience. I mean, you know, what are they going to do? Beat you to death with a soft lettuce or something like that? <laughs> and yet, people's moral courage is, is pretty limited. It's hard to get a front of Israel coming. I, I don't know why it is that so often on Q&A the discussion is about Israel and the Middle East, but it often is. Everyone who is a friend of Israel or who knows the truth should be speaking up publicly. Thirdly, the facts themselves, though, are changing things. So this is why the internal conflict in Israel is so tragic at the moment. Because in some respects, the external affairs, there's a good story to tell. Now, there's a tremendous danger with Iran. Tremendous danger, no doubt about that. But look at the four new peace treaties that Israel has uh, achieved in the last few years under Benjamin Netanyahu, the Abraham Accords. Now, the, the, in the Middle East, Arab nations are coming to grips with the reality of Israel. And they're saying, you know what? Israel is helpful to us in accessing technology, in resisting Iran, in military intelligence. I remember once, I certainly won't say the man's name, he's dead now anyway, but I went to the home of an Israeli, former Israeli intelligence chief, and I said to him, oh, I'm just uh, going to Morocco next week. He said, where are you staying? And I told him, and he said, oh yeah, it's a nice little hotel there, but if you just go down two blocks, there's a terrific market, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, how come you know this place so well? You know, Morocco doesn't, in those days, it's quite a long time ago. Morocco doesn't have been Israelis, and he just laughed. He said, what a joke, you know, but of course Israeli intelligence has been cooperating with Arab and North African intelligence for decades, you know, all kinds of secret trips have been taken and all the rest. But now, a number of those nations are recognising Israel, so they're not allowing the Palestinian conflict to hold up normalisation of relations with Israel. Now, if Israel just was in a normal moment right now, it would be able to reap tremendous benefit from those diplomatic breakthroughs. Now, Israel, I think, did follow a very smart strategy before that of expanding diplomatically in Asia. So India was a critical country in normalising relations with Israel. Singapore, of course, has always had very good relations with Israel. I think Israel's relations with China are too close. And uh, whenever I'm talking to Israeli friends, I say, OK, I understand you've got a lot on your plate, but don't think the Chinese are your friends. And indeed, the Americans have been putting that message to the Israelis, and there's been 
some adjustment about investment and technology sharing and all the rest of it. But by going through Asia, so the Arab world looked at the Asian world and said, guess what, Asia is engaging in all these agreements with Israel and getting the tremendous benefit of Israeli brains and smarts and high-tech cooperation and all the rest of it. And we're doing none of that because of the extremism of the political leadership of the Palestinians. So that in itself, I think, breaks down that narrative and breaks down that stereotype. But having said all that, there's no doubt at all that, so I think also, there's no doubt at all that what you said is basically true. And one reason for that, I think, is not only, let's be honest, historical anti-Semitism and traditional anti-Israel feeling, but also, beyond that, this breakdown within Western democracies that I'm talking about, about belief and purpose and so on, which means that anything which is seen as a friend of the West is, is seen as a bad thing. So Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, the only place where uh, Arabs get to vote meaningfully for, um, for their government, the only place that has gay pride marches and so forth. And yet, Israel is regarded as a demon of, of human rights. And this is partly because the Western intelligentsia has turned against the West, and Israel is seen as part of the West. Just as our elites now hate Australia, and the voice, I think, is part of the denigration of Australia, that all of Australian history must be denigrated. Of course, there are very bad things in Australian history, but a lot of accomplishment too, a lot of rights <coughs> and good But now the whole of the West has to be regarded as ineradicably evil, and Israel is seen as part of the West. So the bottom line of that is, it's a target-rich environment. There's lots of work to do. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.